Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today, we're talking to John Jenkins, who served in the Navy JAG Corps for 13 years. 13 active. Yep. 13 active. And before that, you were a surface warfare officer, weren't you, John? Correct. I started out as a ship driver out of Charleston, South Carolina on Perry Frigates. And what year was that? 1987 to 1991 was a combat information center officer on USS Carr. She was a Perry frigate and uh, had the opportunity to do a couple of Persian excursions during the uh, Iran-Iraq War when we were escorting Kuwaiti tankers that were reflagged as U.S. tankers. And then we were there again right before the, the start of the first Gulf War. So did you lap or did you go to law school at night or something? After I rolled off the ship, I went to Bupers uh, as a rating assignment officer and applied for and was picked up for the law education program. So from 91 to 94, I was in law school uh, at George Washington University. Was Nilso Norfolk your first assignment? Yeah. So uh, after graduating GW and obviously spent a little bit of time in Newport, which is always a great place to be, I was uh, assigned to the Naval Legal Service Office down in Norfolk, Virginia. And I did uh, about one year as a prosecutor. And then that was before the separation of the defense and trial service offices. And so I uh, then went up to the second floor and uh, where the defense counsel were at that time, and then uh, was the senior defense counsel for uh, about two years at, uh, at Nelson Norfolk. We had probably about that time, 10 or 12 lawyers working in the defense shop and great apprenticeship experience for young lawyers because at that point, a lot of court cases going, a lot of administrative boards, and it was a real opportunity for a young practitioner to hone his or her uh, advocacy skills and spend time on your feet making arguments in front of uh, finders of fact. Ballpark, how many courts martial did you think you did? I did uh, close to 250 over a three-year period. Do you remember how many you were carrying at one time and what the nature of those allegations were? You know, at any one time you were carrying anywhere from six to a dozen cases. When you first, I think, started out, you were carrying more of what I would call the misdemeanor type cases, UAs, the drug cases, things that weren't going to be too complicated. So you would carry more of those dozen, 15 at a time. And then as you got a little more experienced and spent more time on your feet in the courtroom, started catching felony type cases, that case count might go down a little bit because they were a little more involved. But I mean, I tried obviously a bunch of the UA dives and single spec drug allegations, but I also tried some very interesting cases at a, uh, at a kidnapping and robbery case off of the Emory S. Land. Tried a national security case with a young man that got caught up in a false flag operation and uh, four counts of attempted espionage. Chris Reismeyer will remember that case. I had a homicide case that uh, did up in Iceland, a manslaughter case. It ran the gamut, but uh, it was also a steady diet of trial practitioner skills building. 
from witness interviews to understanding jury instructions and how to build a trial book by starting with the jury instructions and working backwards to what evidence you had. And then obviously, uh, when you're a defense counsel, working with your client, try to get them the best outcome given the circumstance they find themselves in. Now, John, most of these, you were by yourself, right? Probably 75% of the cases you were working individually, those that had you know more witnesses or more serious charges, you would work with a co-counsel. And that was, you were sort of the, the newer lawyer. That was a learning opportunity for you to learn from people that had more experience in the courtroom. And then once you had a little more experience, bringing some of the, the newer lawyers in to give them pieces of cases, be it evidence marshalling, witness interviewing, briefing and arguing motions in front of the court. It was a learning opportunity all around. So John, after that, you went up to DC, right? Left the Dilso in, I guess it was 97, and then went to the Office of Legislative Affairs, OLA. LA-6, at least that time, was the code where the the lawyers were working with the the director of legislation and the chief of legislative affairs on uh, the annual authorization bill provisions of the National Defense Authorization Act that were either policy interest to the Navy, be it the civilian side in SECNAV or be it the military side in the CNO's office, and then helping to provide the information, policy support, and answering questions of members of Congress and the professional committees to uh, to help that legislative process come to its uh, natural conclusion with the annual uh, vote on the NDAA. So it was uh, a big change. Obviously, you go from the courtroom to the halls of Congress, and you also go from, at least at that time, wearing a uniform to not wearing a uniform. You wore a suit every day because you were generally on the Hill two, three, four days out of the week, sometimes dialoguing and working with the professional staff individually. Often, you're going up there with uh, a uh, military or civilian official that uh, was meeting with a member or uh, professional staff, or in some cases, personal staff on you know a legislative item. And then as we were talking beforehand, some family circumstances required you to make a choice and you decided that I'm going to punch out and focus on one area or live in one area so I can be supportive of everything that needs to happen. What did you do after you left the court? Did you have a plan or was it wasn't well thought out? I would say that I was 13 years active at that point and handed my active commission in for a reserve commission and needed to, to find a job. And one of the things, you know, anybody transitioning out of the service needs to ask himself or herself, whether you're going at year 13, year 23, or year 30, is A, what is it that I think I want to do at this point? And that's, I think, a question that changes over time. And then two, how am I going to sell myself or advertise my background and experience as something that's compatible with what an employer is seeking? And that could be a government employer, could be a private employer, could be a law firm, could be a company in an in-house environment. But you have to think about how you translate your military experience and your skill sets that you have developed during the course of your military career into something that's going to be value additive to the organization that you're looking to join. And so that time, it was very much uh, a legal experience. It was either litigation in the courtroom and advocacy or legislative policy and advocacy around uh, legislative policy and outcomes. And so I joined a a law firm in uh, Washington, D.C., left very quickly 
after I joined. In fact, I thought about, did I make a wrong decision and do I need to try to go back on active duty? And that was very much a, um, a decision based on culture and values. We in the military have a certain culture, have a certain value set, and have certain expectations around values with those that we uh, work with as our colleagues our, and expect out of our leaders and those who are on our team. And I saw and experienced a value set that was very different than what I was used to. And I was not comfortable in that environment and working in that so I left that firm quickly, went to another firm that was a little more, I would say, in line with my value set and my expectations around. Just for a point of reference, how old were you at this time? Let's see. I would have been 34, 34, 35. Went to another law firm in their litigation group. And the expectation was you're going to be trying uh, or working civil cases. These were primarily commercial but I also did uh, trust and estates cases, did fiduciary cases, real estate property cases, so eminent domain type work. But really, if it was a piece of civil litigation that was going to the courthouse, it was something that I at least had an opportunity to work on. As I think I remarked earlier when we were talking, Tom, the one thing that you, certainly, at least in my era, you had to to sell to uh, to an employer if you're looking litigation as a uh, as a practice area was the amount of opportunity you had to be in court uh, on a variety of matters when you were, were a JAG. You know, I walked into the, the law firm having tried many, many, many more cases than the partners that I was working for. In fact, during my three years at the, at the firm in Northern Virginia, there were six civil jury trials and I tried all six of them because I had more jury time or courtroom time than the civil partners. And so I guess back to my point about when you're leaving and thinking about what's next, culture values and the leadership ethos of the organization you're joining is very important, but also figuring out what it is in your background and experience that is going to be value additive to the organization you're joining. In that instance, the value add was obviously a, a depth of experience in the courtroom, which was you know, relevant for that group because they were doing civil litigation. So it was, it was three years at the law firm. Then along the lines of it's, it's better to be lucky than good. I started uh, representing Tyco International first as you know outside counsel at that time back in 2002-2003. There was a really a, an ethics breakdown at the leadership of that company. The CEO found himself indicted. The CFO found himself indicted. The general counsel found himself indicted. The chief tax officer found himself indicted. The new management team was looking to right the ship, so to speak. And at the time, there were over 50 consolidated securities class actions. There was an SEC investigation. There were criminal prosecutions of the former executives. And so there was a lot of litigation, I would say, management work that needed to happen. And so I was uh, assigned to you know, a team that was working with the company. I would fly to New York on Mondays, work out of Manhattan for five days and fly back to Dulles on Fridays. And that went on for many, many, many months. But again, when you have a new opportunity back to thinking about, you know, how is it that you're going to add value to that organization? Well, there was a lot of support negotiation and interaction with law enforcement and criminal prosecutorial authorities. And I'd been both a criminal defense and a prosecutor. And so knew a little bit about how to navigate and help those agencies get to an outcome that was going to benefit at that time, right? The company, we were worried about making sure the company wasn't going to get into trouble for the acts of these individuals. And it turns out that one of the prosecutors on, uh, on, the, on the Keselowski case 
I was a Naval Academy graduate. And so that, that connection was one that, uh, that helped because, you know, immediate trust and kind of a known quantity as to, to who you're dealing with and you know, what can you expect from them in terms of trust, transparency, teamwork. So ne- never, never look for the opportunity to, to leverage what you bring in terms of your background, your skill, your experience, your tool bag in trying to maximize uh, on, on new opportunities that are presented to you. So Tyco was two years you know, doing litigation work with Again, regulatory agencies, the SEC, civil litigation, the, the criminal prosecutions. After about two years uh, doing that work, I had the opportunity to change practice areas and became the, the, you know, the corporate secretary. So it was a, a new practice area that I had to, I would say, learn a little bit about. But as I said to the general counsel at uh, Tyco at the time, I may, I may not know all the, the details uh, and the intricacies of the securities regulation, but I do know we'll get you put in jail and you won't go to jail on my watch. At that point, I mean, you made this jump. Obviously, you had the confidence that you could do it. You know, you always hear it's not rocket science. I'm assuming that it wasn't rocket science. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, you know, you made it through law school. You can read. It takes a little bit of self-study in learning the basics of a new practice area. and. You know, if it's really, really complicated, well, there are specialists out there that you can rely on to help give you some specialized advice. It's almost the 80-20 rule. 80% of it I'm comfortable with or I can get comfortable with. The 20% that I'm not, I'm going to go get help. But I think, you know, that is the, again, back to what value do you bring? Most JAG officers are more generalists than specialists. I mean, we do have some specialists in perhaps environmental law or healthcare law or even operational law. And that's where you spend the majority of your mid and senior part of your career. But most officers have a generalist background. And it is that generalist background that gives you, I would say, confidence and the flexibility to pick up a new practice area, to pick up and develop a new skill set, to invest a little bit of time in yourself in getting smart on an area. And then having, I would say, you know, the, the right judgment as to where you're competent and where perhaps you need help and need support and need a specialist to give you some additional you know, insight into a particular area of law. But as I said, you know, JAG officers are pretty flexible in that they have a wide diversity of background and experience throughout your career. And therefore, you're, you're, you got to learn a lot about a lot of different things over 20 or 30 years. And therefore, that generalist mindset translates very well into at least uh, some of what the, uh, the private sector seeks, wants, and needs out of people with a military background. So I'm looking at your LinkedIn right now. It says you did almost 10 years at Tyco, and now you're at your current job. Correct. Yeah. What, what is your current job? So I'm the general counsel at TE Connectivity. It's the old Tyco Electronics business that was spun out from Tyco International in 2007. We're uh, an industrial technology company. We're probably one of the biggest industrial technology companies you've never heard of. (laughs) But what is connectivity, right? It's mechanical and electrical product that moves power, data, or signal through an industrial application. So there's not a car on the road that doesn't have our product in it. When you go to turn to start your engine, it's our connector that's moving the electrical signal from the ignition switch uh, to the starter. You turn your radio on in your car, it's our infotainment connectors uh, that's moving the power from the battery distribution unit back to your radio to 
to listen to music. When you roll down your window, it's our connector that's moving, again, power around that architecture to operate the, the window. Uh, but we're in you know anything that's got two or more wheels on the surface, but we're also in aviation, uh, both commercial and military. We're on military programs, but in addition to Boeing and Airbus, and Embraer and the smaller uh, jet makers like Gulfstream, we're in you know, almost every white good that's in your home. So whether it's a LG washing machine or uh, a KitchenAid refrigerator, it's our product that's moving, again, the power or the data or the signal around it. We're about a $16 billion top-line manufacturer, 135 factories around the world, 80,000 employees. And uh, as I said, you know, S&P, I would say 250 probably at this point, given the market over the last uh, month, month and a half. Well, I was going to say, you know, so as the general counsel, right, I have, I would say, plenary responsibility for everything that is law related. But in addition, I have responsibility over our uh, government affairs, and that's a global. So I've got people in Washington and Brussels and in Shanghai. I have responsibility over our enterprise risk and our crisis management. I have responsibility over our trade services and trade compliance and have responsibility over um, real estate as well. You would ask again earlier, Tom, about, you know, how do you translate perhaps some of what you've learned, what you are capable of doing and apply it again, back to my point about how are you going to add value to organization? You think about a couple of things. Well, now I've got responsibility for government affairs, but I've been on the, the Hill, albeit 25 years ago. So I have a little bit of insight into you know, how you form relationships with legislators and policymakers, be it in the U.S. or elsewhere. But you also have a background in solving problems and in working, in some instances, under incredibly stressful situations, for example, like in times of armed conflict. And so I chair our crisis management, and I liken being the chair of our crisis management team globally to being a tactical action officer. Now, I was a TAO when I was on the ship. And this is very much TAO skill set. Take 50, 60 to 80% of the information that's available to you in a environment where time is of the essence uh, and make a decision and then execute on that decision through the members of that team who you know, are like uh, you know the crew on a ship at general quarters. And not something that's obvious, you know, when you're transitioning out of, uh, you know, out of uniform into a civilian environment. But there's many, many examples of where that skill set or your background um, has value. I'll give you another example. Companies very much these days, I'll speak, I guess, you know, about at least one sector of the employer population, very much lack capable leaders. To be a successful, you know, public company executive, doesn't mean you're the best lawyer or the best accountant or the best HR person. What the company expects out of you, number one, is to be a leader. Uh, what the company expects, number two, is to be an executive, meaning be a good team member with the leadership team to bring about whatever the mission uh, of that company is. And then thirdly, we'll be professionally competent. So you know, when I was hired as the general counsel, it wasn't because I was the best lawyer. Uh, I'm probably by far and away not the best lawyer that works at TE. It's because there's an expectation around leadership and executive uh, capabilities. And so senior people that are be retiring out of the JAG Corps uh, have had years and years and sometimes, sometimes decades of leadership 
and executive experience and being able to translate what you have done in uniform as a leader, as an executive, as a professional to what the lawyer is asking or seeking of you is, again, something that demonstrates where you are going to add value to that organization and will make you an attractive So other than your first job out of uniform, maybe even your second one, which was really, hey, this is the skill set I have, which was a ton of litigation. These other jobs were through your network, but through the people proving what you've been able to do, representing Tyco, becoming part of Tyco, and then from there, moving over to TE Connectivity. And I've heard what you said more than once. It's the leadership that we bring, but it's that ability to get the foot in the door, which is where everybody fears and has to go up against. That's where I sit is finding just cracking that plane. You make a very good point. And and that is your professional network is going to be critical to your ability to gain entry into an opportunity. And then once you're sort of uh, establishing yourself at whatever that next job is, be it a government job, be it a private company, be it another practice environment, a small firm environment, will enable your opportunity to either grow within that current role or to have other opportunities in that company or in that environment. I I wrote down on my legal pad here, the the concept, which should be familiar to to most, right? The sea daddy corporate world, the sea daddy or the sea mommy. Uh, active duty, you had one C daddy, maybe two C daddies. In the civil environment, you need a C family, uh, mommies and daddies, and cousins and friends and family, and trying to access uh, those networks and then leverage them to help give you the opportunity. Or once again, you're in an environment where you've been given a, you know, your next role, your next job to help expand your ability to be successful in that environment. Right. Uh, I mean, there's a number of JAGs. Certainly, I know Navy, um, but I'm going to guess the same is probably true for Army, Air Force, Marine, Coast Guard, who have you know either left mid-career or retired and started a second career, and would be very happy to sponsor or mentor a uh, fellow JAG officer. Uh, to give them the opportunity to open the doors, as you said, is the is the first step to the next part of your journey. So where do you see John Jenkins five years from now? I would hope to be retired, frankly, or at least semi-retired and, and doing something else. One of the benefits of, of having a background, you know, in the military is it's very much a, you know, an up or out culture. You continue to progress professionally and take on roles and increasing your responsibility. And oh, by the way, as a leader, it's your job to develop your team and your subordinates to do your job and replace you at some point. The concept of general counsel, no, I don't subscribe to. No, I invest in your team, develop them, get them ready for their next professional opportunity, and then enable that next professional opportunity, be it at TE or elsewhere. And there's only one GC, but I've got uh, 11 people on my leadership team. Uh, many of whom have professional aspirations to be a public company general counsel. That means eight or nine of them are going to have to go be GCs elsewhere. But I, I need to, to help enable the professional success of all of my team members. Some will be here, some will be elsewhere. Uh, and that's a good thing. I would hope that five years from now, TE or not TE, I'm continuing to have a, an impact on the team that I'm working with to make sure that they're getting the professional development to help them achieve their career aspirations. And then I would also say it's applying deck plate leadership lessons I learned when I was an ensign on a ship. You get people trained, you get them resourced, 
You give them reward and recognition. You get them paid and get them promoted and make sure they have time off to spend with their friends and family and give them a work-life balance. And once you've done that, get out of the way and let them do their job and reach their professional goals. So that's what I hope the next five years portends. If you had a chance to advise a younger John Jenkins who's approaching that decision to get out, is there any other advice that you would be giving him? Or how about an old Tom Welsh? There, there was one thing that I found very, well, maybe shocking, uh, very unnatural when I got out of the military. And that is, you know, when you're in the Navy, you learn how to give orders and you learn how to take orders. Private practice in the civil world, that's not necessarily the case. People don't either know how to give orders or some people refuse orders. They won't take them. And so um, a skill set that I would say would be something that anyone transitioning out of the military, be it, you know, JAG or not JAG, needs to learn and embrace the ability to influence without authority. Meaning I can influence an outcome for a professional goal without having the authority of the UCMJ standing behind me. I need to be persuasive. I need to make arguments about why one course is better than the other course. I need to show how it's in the interest of the individual or the organization to pursue that course. So influencing without authority is a skill set that many in the military don't know, haven't learned because you have had to learn it, but it is a skill set that is very necessary, useful, and in some cases critical when you are um, transitioning from, again, you know, a, a military environment to a, to a civilian or a civil environment. So you've been involved in the hiring of attorneys at these places? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So what do you look for? So first I look for relevant or substantive experience in the area that I'm seeking to, to hire. And it can be corporate lawyer, you've done transactional work before, you're a labor and employment lawyer, you've worked in either HR or litigation, it can be a commercial lawyer, you've worked in contracting, it can be an ethics and compliance lawyer, you've done investigations, you've done jagman type work. But I look for the relevant you know, experience. And then I look for, okay, how is this individual, given that background or skill or experience, going to add value to my organization? And what are what is this interview candidate selling to me as their value proposition? You know, those that have researched the company, have thought about the job and the job requirements, and then thought creatively about how their experience or their skill set translates into adding value to our organization. Those are the people that get hired because they've thought about what it is we need and how they are going to be contributors to the team, either as an individual contributor, as a team member, or as a leader at all levels of the organization. Again, you know how it is that your body of work is going to add value to what the employer needs. What is that one thing a separating retiring JAG should avoid doing or saying as they approach corporate work, it's avoid the jargon of the practice, you know, in the military, right? Avoid the, you know, the things that we're all familiar with, the anacronyms and the jargon, because every company has their own anacronyms and their own jargon. And, you know, you have to learn the language of the enterprise, be it a company, be it a firm, be it a government environment, 
you know, learn to speak their language. John, we've covered a lot of ground uh, already, but is there anything that I missed that you wanted to get out? I guess I would end where maybe I started a little bit. It's around the it's around the values of the of the organization that you're seeking to to join, and you know how it is that it aligns with your own you know individual values, and if so, then how you can demonstrate you know your fitness for the organization. You know, many companies and firms uh, and employers these days have purpose statements have value statements, have strategy maps, and I'll call it, you know, value proposition uh, collateral that's publicly available. Um, Get a hold of that and make sure you read and understand it and ask yourself, does this sound and feel like something that would be a fit for me and that I would be a fit for them? And again, when you're starting conversations, be it networking or exploratory interviews or actual interviews, start from the, the point of values and then work to, you know, the work and the opportunity from that point. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's John Jenkins. 27 years later, <laughs> he's still mentoring. Some things never change, John. It's really good to see you. Tom, it was great seeing you. And uh, I hope it's not 27 years before we talk again. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.